I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. May the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace, when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each, the brotherhood of all. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open mind. Hello and welcome to To the Republic, a show dedicated to history, civics, and U.S. institutions. I am your host, Jake, and in this month, I'm going in alone again. But that's not a problem because this topic is something that is, once again, near and dear to my heart. I kind of say that a lot. I think there's a lot of topics that are near and dear to my heart, but this one especially uh, is something that uh, has really been a part of my life for my entire life, uh, and that is guns and gun ownership. So I think in this episode, what we're going to do is talk a bit about the history of uh, the Second Amendment, the debates around it, where it came from uh, in our second segment. We're going to then talk about uh, the fundamental court cases and uh, legislation passed by the U.S. Congress that has really shaped uh, gun ownership in the United States and gun control. And then in the third segment, I'm going to talk about uh, kind of the contemporary modern debates around gun control, where it might be heading, and kind of point out things that both sides of this very contentious, heated argument get wrong. And uh, for me, I think this is something that I'm kind of uniquely qualified to talk about. I have lived my entire life as a hunter. I have worked at a gun counter selling firearms for the last so over a decade now. So I'm, I'm very much in uh, this world. And one thing I'll talk about in the third segment is that I think that there has really developed a culture around the ownership of guns in the United States. And when you're talking about trying to come to compromise, I think that's something that needs to be addressed. It needs to be not confronted, but I think it needs to be understood. And when we're having a debate with somebody that you may not agree with, especially if you're a gun control advocate and you're trying to have a debate or a discussion with somebody who is opposed to gun control in its modern forms, is that there is there all there is a kind of a culture and an ethos around the ownership of guns that i think needs to be understood in order for us to have a full understanding of each of us as individuals living in the society together so that being said uh before we start the uh the the, the episode today i did want to uh point out that there are some major changes going on with kxrw uh, fm and uh you can uh, there's some new shows starting too, which are exciting. So um, and but if you want to ever catch our backlog and you want in when you get up to when you go to kxrw.fm, there's a whole list of backlogs. You can catch our show there. You can catch the Common Good. Uh, you can catch um, voices from our community, the filibusters. Uh, there is a lot of good content on there. Gordon Green's uh, Music Planet. The Mud Club with Ivan Ivan. There's great music content, um, very eclectic uh, music library that they put out. Uh, it, fantastic stuff. And while you're there, and if you like what you're listening to and you think that what KXRW.FM is doing uh, is helping the community, please consider donating. Uh, it keeps us on the air. Uh, it helps us get through some of these changes that are happening right now within uh, within our family. So uh, once again, if anything you can do uh, that really does help us out. So with that being said, uh, let's 
just dive right into our topic for today. So I think we should start with what the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution actually says. So the wording is a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed, period. So that's kind of a weird sentence. It's it's pretty unclear and it's created pretty much, it is basically the source of the major ambiguity uh, right now in the debate about gun ownership. Well, maybe not modern, but like the historical scope of the argument around gun ownership in the United States is really centered around what this means. It's the preamble, a well-regulated militia being necessary to security of a free state. Is that what the founders meant by a by the second by the Second Amendment in terms of gun ownership, does that mean that it's a collective right uh, as a state militia to basically keep citizens ready to be able to form a state militia to uh, address existential threats to uh, to the government of the United States, or is it the operative clause, which is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, insinuating an individual's right. Um, not a collective right that you have the, as an individual, you have the right to keep and bear arms, as it says. And that means you have the right to protect your home and whatever else that means. And there was a lot of new conceptualizations about what the founders and framers meant by, by that. And we can even quote some, there's some famous quotes that constantly get passed around the, the pro-gun, uh, the pro-gun lobby and the pro-gun side of this argument. And that is, so I'll read some of them here. They're a little interesting. So like one from Thomas Jefferson, um, no free man shall ever be debarred the use of arms. The strongest reason for the people to retain the right to keep and bear arms is as our last resort to protect themselves against tyranny and government. Samuel Adams once said the constitution shall never be con construed to prevent the people of the United States who are peaceful citizens from keeping their arms. George Washington also wrote, when people to, when government takes away citizens' right to bear arms, it becomes citizens' duty to take away government's right to govern. So those are, like, those are interesting quotes, right? And I feel like when put into context, the historical context of where, what these guys had, <clears throat> had lived through, you know, they had, they had revolted against the British crown and then formed the government. So they're very suspicious about central authority especially the group called the Anti-Federalists, led by Samuel Adams, uh, who were the who was basically the, the purveyor of the Bill of Rights, which wasn't even part of the initial draft of the U.S. Constitution at the convention in, 19, uh, in 1787. And so it really comes down to I don't think you can just put these quotes in the, in a vacuum and say, well, this is what the founders meant that they were specifically talking about individual liberty, because there are a lot of court cases, a lot of court precedent that make the, that dating back to even the post-Civil War era that are making, that make the argument a more of a collective right. So this is a much more nuanced debate, I think, than many people have. Uh, from both sides. I, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions and my goal here with this episode is to try to um, clear up those misconceptions in a way. So the two the two major sides of these debate, as, I, as this debate has had, had kind of laid out is the um, the diverging arguments, which is, was it a collective right a militia, to have a militia uh, or is it an individual freedom? So the, the basically the the 
the historical argument for the militia is to protect the government and the people from threats, both foreign and domestic, and domestic being insurrection. Um, and I think there's a lot of precedent to that because I think what there was a lot of fear from the founders at the time of the writing of the Constitution, just right out, you know, in 1787, we won uh, the Revolutionary War from the British in 1783. So we're coming right off of a of a revolution where most of these guys served as military commanders. Or um, so there's there was a lot of fear and mistrust and of not being able to defend one of one being able to defend the the new republic. So the the thought behind it is is that having a well regulated militia and because they are also a big fear of standing armies that was one of the things that many of the founders wrote it was this, this Thomas Jefferson especially wrote at length about his fear of standing armies that a that they were the greatest threat and like by extension a military coup to government stability and to democracy as a whole so that a keeping a keeping a militia to rise up to be able to be called up in a short notice to take care of domestic insurrections like the whiskey rebellion or to um in in, in a short amount of time be able to quell a a, a foreign threat now there that doesn't mean that the united states that the, the federal government one of the biggest things between the u.s constitution and the articles of confederation is it allowed congress to be able to raise an army and declare war well actually those are the same so with is an standing army could be raised to fight foreign wars if need be but the the big thing was is being afraid of a standing army that has since changed we have a massive standing army and and that is a huge difference in our foreign policy between uh 1787 and today so and then kind of going along a line with those lines a newer a newer argument that is kind of rising up in popularity amongst uh within this kind of camp if you will the 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 collective right militia camp argument of the second amendment is that the second amendment was actually was written in a way to uh help keep slave slave revolts down and that one of the major pervasive kind of underlying ideology behind the the founders putting in the second amendment was to ensure that uh slaver that if a slave revolt happened in the united states that armed white people would be able to put it down and not i'm not going to completely discredit that offhand because i have I, there's more research that i need to do but in the timeline for me in this particular argument doesn't make sense i'm not i'm not saying that racism and slavery were not at the forefront of major a lot of these debates so the three-fifths compromise especially but i don't think with this i don't think with this particular amendment that slavery is at the forefront of the minds of our founders when they when they included it because there wasn't even an agreement amongst the founders to even include the second amendment or even the bill of rights in general and this was this was to appease the anti-federalists like samuel adams from massachusetts who greatly distrusted any sort of central government and wanted to basically maintain uh, states' rights over the federal government. And the because it, the, to preface this, what a, my biggest area of study in my history degree was uh, European uh, colonialism and its uh, effects on native populations around the world. And one of the biggest 
in terms of slavery in the in the Pacific in the Pacific area, especially the uh, the Caribbean islands, and then also later on in the United States, slave revolts weren't really seen as a major risk until the Haitian Revolution in 1791, which really then really set the stage for a lot of fear about slave revolts. But before that, there really wasn't much thought given to the fact that slave populations, especially within the, the, the sugar plant, the size of the sugar plantations in the Caribbean and, and areas like uh, Jamaica and Antigua, the, these British colonies, there really wasn't much of a thought that it could, that it could happen. Um, so that's why I don't really, I don't really buy that, this portion of the argument, but I do think that most of it is a timeline. This doesn't, makes sense because it was four years prior to the Haitian revolution, which really fundamentally changed how Europeans saw the slave population. And uh, so that's just my kind of two cents on this. Once again, I could be completely wrong, but I, I don't necessarily really buy that portion of the, uh, of the, the collective threat, the collective uh, right argument of the of the Second Amendment. So we'll pivot now to the other side of the argument, which is the individual rights argument. And really a lot of it, what it centers on is the protection from oneself against an intrusive tyrannical government, but then also the, the, the self-reliance aspect. There's a very big self-reliance aspect on within this argument, and that is I have the, the obligation and the responsibility as an individual to protect my home um, and my family from threats, whatever those threats may be. An individual breaking into my home to rob me to my, or, or to harm me, uh, harm my property, whatever. I have the right to protect myself, full stop. And I think that as both both sides, it, it doesn't really need, I mean, it is more, a little bit more nuanced than that, but really that's what it kind of boils down to is this individuals, I have this, I have an individual right to own these, to own these firearms. Um, and therefore the government does not have the ability to tell me what I cannot, what I can and cannot own when it, terms, when it comes to firearms. It's, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about like firearm legislation and court rulings in the second segment that kind of either dispel that or strengthen that a bit um, because there's a lot of contradict there's a lot of contradictory nature within firearms and it's changed a lot over time uh the, the time we live in makes gun rights seem so much more black and white but there really is so much gray throughout our history and as it relates to this this very important very divisive topic so uh, with that, I believe, I think we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we'll dive into uh, some of the important legisl uh, legislative um, milestones, uh, such as the Gun Control Acts of 1934 and 1968, the Brady Bill, and then also McDonald v. City of Chicago and Heller v. District of Columbia. So when we come back, um, we will dive right into those. You've been listening to The Republic. I'm Jake. Thank you for listening. 
Many thanks to our sponsor and friends at Say Chow Columbia River Tap Room and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 27 years in the Vancouver area. Say Chow Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way in Vancouver. Dine in or take out for lunch Monday through Friday 11 to 2 p.m. Hours will change and live local music will return once again as COVID phases allow. More information available at say-chow.com, that's S-A-Y-C-I-A-O.com, or directly at 360-210-5522. Big thank you to Craft Cannabis, formerly known as New Vansterdam, for supporting our radio community. Craft Cannabis now has two locations here in Vancouver. Both locations offer online ordering and curbside pickup. The Mill Plain location has an express window that serves as a contactless option to pick up your cannabis products. The newest shop is located on Andreessen Road, off Patton Parkway, next to the Home Depot, across from Costco. Both locations are open daily, 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. More information available at craftcannabis.com. Did you know the Planned Parenthood Health Center in Vancouver offers a full range of reproductive and sexual health care? Their services include PrEP, STD testing and treatment, UTI care, cancer screenings, birth control, pregnancy testing and emergency contraception, and gender-affirming care, just to name a few. They provide expert low-cost care when you need it most. To learn more or book an appointment online, Planned Parenthood can be reached at ppcw.org or call 888-576-7526. Welcome back to To The Republic. I'm Jake. In our last segment, we talked about um, gun control in the United States as a historical argument. So uh, what does the Second Amendment mean? And I, uh, I split it up between the two diverging arguments between a collective right, like a, 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 militia, a right to form a militia and having citizens armed to the extent that they could be called up to a militia. Uh, to uh, handle threats both foreign and domestic, or as an an individual's right to own firearms, essentially full stop. And then the federal government doesn't have a right to regulate those arms. So there's a lot of nuance there. um, And I kind of broke that down in in this first, in that first segment. So what I want to do now in this segment is to talk about the, the major firearm legislation that has happened that has been passed in the United States and then talk about two of the uh, the foundational court cases because it really hasn't been much that's one of the that's honestly kind of one of the things that makes in addition to the wording of the second amendment being kind of ambiguous and weird the fact that the second the supreme court has actually been fairly silent on uh, setting the parameters of the second amendment and for a lot of times was operating off of the, the precedent that the federal government would would just leave it up to the states to regulate guns. So it, it's only recently that the federal the federal government or the, the the Supreme Court has really taken up firearm rights issues or trying to to frame and interpret the Second Amendment. Uh, there was a, there are were a couple at the beginning of the nineteenth cent beginning of the twentieth century, but really the the two biggest ones occurred in two thousand eight and two thousand ten. We'll get to those after we talk about uh, the three major pieces of firearm legislation at the federal level. Uh, so, starting in chronological order, we'll we'll start with the uh, nineteen thirty four Gun Control Act. 
So to put the 1934 Gun Control Act, which is the major, the first major real piece of gun control legislation in the United States, into context, in the 1930s, uh, the U.S. faced a run of much publicized gangster violence. It, we see a lot of that in the, with the, the rum running and stuff like that, but really led by guys like John Dillinger and Al Capone and then Bonnie and Clyde. The sensationalistic aspect of these criminals convinced uh, the administration of uh, FDR that something needed to be done and to control the spread of weapons uh, into the general population. Uh, U.S. Attorney General Homer Cummings and his staff began the process of drafting recommended legislation that would achieve this goal. So uh, Cummings and his staff quickly determined that rather than ban weapons and run afoul of the Second Amendment, they would try to tax such weapons uh, out of circulation. Uh, so as originally proposed, the NFA, which is the National Firearms Act, which is the name of the 1934 Gun Control Act, uh, any shotgun or rifle having a barrel less than 18 inches in length or uh, any weapon except a pistol or revolver, which shot a discharge of explosives, such as a weapon capable of being concealed on a person or a machine gun. So basically what it did is it it uh, it made anything that the short barrel rifle, uh, short barrel rifles, anything less than 16 shotguns, anything less than 18 inches would have to be uh, have a tax stamp and be registered with the federal government. Uh, then it also uh, made anything as a fully automatic firearm. So that means something that with one pull of the trigger, and as long as the trigger is held down, the, the firearm will continue to discharge rounds out of its magazine until it's empty. Um, that is not to be consumed, cons uh, be misconstrued with semi-automatic. I see that as a major uh, misconception is semi-automatic and automatic. And semi-automatic is one round per pull of the trigger. Uh, some all fully automatic is when you pull the trigger and hold it down and the gun continues to fire by itself. Uh, so there is a there's a pretty big difference difference there between those two. So I just wanted to make that clear uh, is that the NFA uh, made all fully automatic firearms that were owned or going to be owned. Those had to be uh, fully registered and by what I mean by fully registered is it has to go through an extensive background check process. Now, these days, if somebody wants to buy a short barrel rifle, uh, they would have to get it. Um, they would have to get it uh, fully registered. And that means any time that somebody and suppressors are now uh, considered like this too. your your current address, everything is known to the federal government. And when those are if Anytime you move, you have to notify the, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms (ATF) when you're moving. So all of the all of these things that were, were still that are still in, in in act today came from that 1934 Gun Control Act or the National Firearms Act. Uh, so the this is probably the one firearm legislation bill that didn't really receive much uh, pushback. And the main reason why is because the NRA, which was which was around in 1934, hadn't developed its lobbying arm yet, its legislative arm. Um, so it and it actually in response to 1934, because they were they said they were caught off, they're caught flat footed. Uh, this is when the, the NRA really starts to uh, dig into its um, into what we know as we see it today, which is a very strong lobbying arm for gun for gun rights advocates and really took up the mantle of being the the fighter in the courts on the side of the gun owner. Uh, so um, 
there's it's interesting the fallout from something that is this old. So the tax at the time uh, it levied a two hundred dollar tax on on such weapons, um, which today doesn't seem like a lot, but at the time it it was a lot. Two hundred dollars was often more than the price of the firearm itself. So the thought was that by imposing this tax is that it would keep people from purchasing them, and eventually uh, people stop purchasing them, they get out of circulation anything that comes through the legislation that's through through the legislature that is controversial it pretty much ends up having its day in court and uh, initially somebody uh, sued the federal government stating that uh, limiting their ability to own a short-barreled shotgun uh, keeps them from being able to defend themselves uh, and therefore is a, is a is a breach of their civil civil liberties and the uh, the, the circuit court, I believe it in the Third Circuit, uh, actually shot down the 1934 Gun Control, Gun Control Act initially, uh, and then the federal government uh, filed to the Supreme Court to challenge that ruling, and the Supreme Court actually upheld the 1934 Act, reversing the lower court's decision. Uh, Justice James McReynolds famously dismissed the defendant's case with this statement. The absence of any evidence tending to show that possession or use of a shotgun having a barrel less than 18 inches in length at, at this time has reasonable relationship to the prevention or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. We cannot say that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear arms such as an instrument. Uh, such an instrument. So that's interesting. So in 19, and uh, when this, when this court case came down there in the late 1930s, it's interesting that they're interpreting it as a as a militia uh, as a militia right, not a, as a collective right, not as a individual's right. So they're basically saying that even if is uh, a short barrel rifle, short barrel shotgun in this case, uh, someone owning that was is not instrumental to the citizenry being able to maintain a militia. So it's interesting that that's how the court came down on that. So, um, moving on in chronological order to the next big one, it's about 30 or so years later, and once again in the wake of, of, of a lot of crime in this case, unfortunately, assassinations of key public figures, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, uh, RFK, uh, being the, the high, highest profile ones, the, the Congress uh, began to act, and they passed what is called the Gun Control Act of 1968. So the 1968 Gun Control Act was was passed into law, and like most things, it went through a very rigorous process. And by the 1968, uh, the gun the gun lobby, the NRA, and others had had a much more uh, established footing in the law in the lobbying circle. So there was uh, a it was a much this was much more contentious to get passed than the 1934 Gun Control Act. But when it did get passed, initially it uh, there was it did three major things. First, it prohibited interstate traffic in firearms and ammunition. Later, that would be amended later uh, in the uh, Firearms Owners Protection Act uh, that was uh, that was put forward by the NRA and sponsored by several uh, key Republican senators. Uh, but 
just going on with its initial passing. Uh, secondly, it denied guns to specific classes of individuals, such as felons, minors, fugitives, drug addicts, and the mentally ill. So when you fill out a firearm background check today, this is where it came from as a 1968 Gun Control Act. And there's a whole list of yes or no questions. A lot of them are, have you ever been uh, adjudicated mentally defective? Um, which is funny because when I'm selling guns, I get a lot of old guys that will say, oh, my wife says I'm mentally defective. It just means has a court actually deemed you mentally unfit, um, mentally ill, to the to the extent where you can't own firearms. Uh, there's other stuff like, are you a legal user of marijuana, which is weird in a state like Oregon, which it's legal, but it's not legal at the federal level. So uh, interestingly enough, if somebody has a marijuana a marijuana usage card or if they're, if they're a legal owner, user of marijuana in the state of Oregon, and they, and they have that card, we technically legally cannot sell them a firearm. Uh, there's other things like, uh, have you ever been, you have to check the box, are you fugitive from justice, which seems like an odd question that nobody would ever actually truthfully answer yes to. But the purpose behind that is to, is if someone answers no, they've lied on a federal document and uh, that's something else that they can tack, charges they can tack on. So there's reasonings for it. The, the, the 4473 is the, the uh, federal name of the, of the background check document, and we submit those. It's a, it's fairly long. It's not a long document, but there's a lot of questions to it. So that's kind of an overview of what the background check process looks like, and that stems from this 1968 Gun Control Act. Uh, thirdly, what the, the Gun Control Act did and is uh, it prohibited the importation of surplus military weapons into the United States. So uh, that was a big thing because a lot of World War II, we had a lot of Lend-Lease guns that went over to Europe. Uh, and then also in the wake of the, in the beginning of the Cold War, we were pumping arms into a lot of areas around the world. Uh, well, as those arms started coming back to the United States, there was a surplus of these military grade firearms and uh, Congress and the White House under Lyndon B. Johnson wanted to control the, the dispersion of those firearms. So uh, that was kind of the 1968 Gun Control Act uh, in a nutshell. Really what, uh, when I was talking about the, the amendments to the first part of what this bill did, now it's just the interstate uh, trafficking of handguns. So if you're an out-of-state resident, we get this a lot. So I'm a Washington resident, but I work in Oregon. I work at an Oregon gun shop. So when a Washington resident, or even myself, if I went down to Oregon wanting to buy a handgun, something that is labeled a, that is classified by the, alcohol, by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms as a handgun, I cannot purchase it in Oregon. Well, I can, but it has to be transferred to a federal firearms license dealer in my home state. And I'd have to go do the background check there in Washington under Washington's laws, because a lot of times, like as we'll find out, the Supreme Court and the federal government leaves it up to the states to determine firearm legislation and Oregon and Washington and have very different, uh, have very, very different uh laws and regarding to handguns and ownership of different firearms. So we'll get into I-1639, which was a Washington initiative that passed a few years ago that really changed gun ownership of uh, air of uh, what classified as assault rifles. And, uh, and then also there's a waiting period on handguns in Washington, whereas there's not a waiting period anymore in Oregon. So uh, you can buy, I, we can sell long guns uh, to or Washington residents. Uh, just not AR-15s because of Washington's laws. So there's a there is so much uh, nuance and red tape uh, and firearm like regulation and and, uh, and ownership across state lines. So a lot of this stemming from this particular this particular bill. And then lastly, there was the uh, not lastly the and the third major piece of legislation is the Brady Bill, uh, the Brady Law, uh, which was 
passed in the early 1990s in response to uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, press secretary who was, was shot and uh, paralyzed by an attempted assassin on the president. So what the Brady Bill did was it, it set up a, a mandatory five-day wait on all handgun purchases in the United States. And that stood from 1993 to a court challenge to that law, to the law in 1998 in Prince v. United States, where the Supreme Court actually shut uh, down the mandatory five-day waiting period. And uh, that's when uh, the NICS system, NCIS, uh, which is the instant background check system, was instituted. That doesn't mean that states can't, states can't impose their own waiting periods and that doesn't mean that states can't conduct their own background checks. Actually, in both Washington and Oregon, the states conduct a more thorough check in addition to sending the information to the NICS system uh, for the FBI to run the background check. So uh, Washington and Oregon, especially right now with how many firearms are being purchased, record numbers of firearms are being purchased in the United States. Uh, I see it every day at work. Uh, you have uh, a very long backlog. So even though Oregon doesn't have a waiting period, whereas Washington does have a mandatory waiting period that could be waived with having a Washington State Concealed Weapons Permit, uh, there's right now it's taking about 14 to 15 days for somebody at the state to even be able to look at and process a background check. So. Right now, there is a just because of the volume of guns being purchased, there is a almost a waiting period being uh, instituted in some states because Washington and Oregon don't have the resources that the federal government do, nor they have the manpower to be able to process the amount of background checks that are coming in. Uh, to put this into perspective, the FBI alone in, in the month of March uh, processed 2.3 million background checks. Uh, that is a that's just background checks. That doesn't mean that pe people can be can place multiple firearms on a background check. So we don't know if that's 2.3 million guns or is two. I'm assuming it's probably more. But that is a lot of firearms being uh, being put into the into the system. So with that, uh, we'll move on to the assault weapons ban of 1994, which um, was in which was passed uh, under Bill Clinton's administration, and what that ended up doing was is it defined a certain class of firearm but basically anything that was a semi-automatic that was magazine fed uh could no longer be manufactured or transferred um and that had a 10-year sunset clause which expired in 2004 and was not renewed by the bush admit by uh, well congress did not renew it under the uh under the urgency of the uh george w bush administration so now one after 2004 those guns could be manufactured and transferred again and now we see what we do today which is a prevalence of these firearms on the market um that the assault weapons ban was highly controversial um and but one thing that gun control advocates do point out is that we didn't see these the amount of mass shootings uh during that time frame as we do now and the majority of the these mass shootings are carried out with firearms that would have been banned by this weapons by this weapons ban so uh there's a lot of nuance to to this conversation i keep saying that but it really is tr to this to this whole conversation and debate so uh there isn't a perfect answer and i'm just with this segment i'm really just trying to to talk about the, the key pieces of legislation. So really quickly, I do want to talk about some of the Supreme Court cases, two in, in, uh, in particular. I'll get to those 
right now. And the first one is uh, Washington, D.C. versus Heller. So in this Supreme Court ruling, uh, in a 5-4 decision, this, uh, the court affirmed that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to possess firearms, independent of service in a state militia, and to use firearms for traditionally lawful purposes, including self-defense within the home, it was, Supreme, it was the first Supreme Court case to explore the meaning of the Second Amendment since United States versus Miller in 1939, and that was the one that challenged the 1934 Gun Control Act. Uh, there was a the dissent, uh, and the dissent to this ruling was very pointed, um, and I think rightfully so. Even as a person who owns firearms, I think the way that um, that the Supreme the Supreme Court ignoring precedent uh, and basically completely changing how past the the past Supreme Court had interpreted the Second Amendment from uh, collective right to individual right didn't really have a lot of standing in terms of precedent. Now um, they could argue that the the it was a it was a it was a past mis it was the court made a mistake in the past and and I, I guess I could buy that argument but I thought this this particular case what it what it did was so basically what the majority said was that um well Antonin Scalia who wrote the affirmative so the right uh using the operative clause the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed infringed codifies an individual right to uh right to right from English common law and codified in the, in the English Bill of Rights uh, 1869, the majority held that the Second Amendment's preamble, a well-regulated well militia being necessary to the security of a free state, is consistent with, the inter with this interpretation when understood in the light of the framers' belief that the most effective way to destroy a citizen's militia was to disarm the citizens. The majority also found that United States v. Miller supported the individual's right rather than a collective view, contrary to the do uh, dominant 20th century interpretation of that decision, which gets to my critique of it is that they misinterpreted uh, the Miller case. Uh, so uh, finally, the court held that because the framers understood the right of self-defense to be the central component of the right to keep and bear arms, the Second Amendment implicitly protects the right to use arms in defense of hearth and home. Uh, so it's it's this was a very landmark case in terms of gun ownership. And what uh, Heller ended up doing is that well, the the, the challenge to Heller was that. You can own you can own handguns in the District of Columbia, and they don't have. You can carry them. Uh, the, the local and state authorities don't have the right to tell you you can't carry a firearm um, at all, like full stop. And then that keeping a because the way the law was written in before the Heller decision is that you had to keep a trigger lock on your handgun at all times, even in the home, and saying that that was, uh, that was inhibiting self-defense. So that's kind of where the, this argument was coming from. So I'm gonna pivot now to uh, McDonald v. City of Chicago, which was a uh, 2010 ruling by the Supreme Court. Uh, in a 5-4 decision, uh, like, the, like, the, Heller, like the, uh, the Heller decision, uh, the US con the, sec the Supreme Court argument that the right of the people to keep and bear arms applies to state and local governments, as well as the federal government. Uh, the case arose from, a 2000, from 2008 when Otis McDonald, a retired African-American custodian, and others filed suit in U.S. District Court to challenge provisions of the 1982 Chicago law that, among other things, generally banned new registration of handguns and made registration a prerequisite of possession of a firearm. In its ruling, the Supreme Court reversed and uh, remanded the appellate court's decision because initially uh, McDonald lost his case in the uh, in the appellate court. 
uh, writing for the majority, Samuel Alito, argued on the basis of Heller that the Second Amendment is incorporated, i.e. that it should be selectively incorporated as applicable to the states through due process clause. I was basically saying that the states cannot, uh, up to this point, the, the federal government, and still to an extent, the federal government leaves firearm legislation and gun control uh, and ownership up to the states. But um, the, what the federal government here is saying, what the Supreme Court is saying, is that to a, only to a certain extent. You cannot bar people completely from owning firearms. Uh, and uh, because of the individual's right to possess, because of the because of the individual's right to possess and use firearms for traditionally lawful purposes, particularly self-defense, is fundamental to the American quote scheme of ordered liberty and system of justice. Essentially, that standard the court maintained was applied to the Supreme Court in 1960s to incorporate a number of rights regulated to, into criminal procedures and reusing the, uh, the the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to argue that. Um, that states or any any local any state or local government cannot restrict uh, rights of citizens without due process. So they're using the Fourteenth Amendment also to build the case of, uh, of McDonald and then McDonald v. City of Chicago case. So these are two very landmark decisions and have reverberated across uh, the last this last decade in the firearms debate uh, and and potential firearm legislation going forward. So with that, I, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about more modern conceptualizations of the debate. Uh, we're kind of I see both sides being wrong in certain areas, and where I see both sides being right in certain areas, uh, just using my own observations and my own uh, kind of my own experience uh, with with living on both sides of this debate. So when we come back, that's what we'll talk about. You've been listening to The Republic. I'm Jake. A big thank you to Fusion CBD. Fusion CBD offers products to help you stay calm, balanced, and focused. All Fusion CBD products are derived from the whole plant, from gummies and tinctures to topicals, teas, smokable flour, and products for your pet. To learn more or order products, go to FusionCBD.com or stop by the store at 9102 Northeast Highway 99 in Vancouver. Community Radio Like This is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics. Clark County's local print shop since 1993, ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. Welcome back to To the Republic. I am Jake, and in our last segment, we talked about uh, the key pieces of firearm legislation and the major landmark cases uh, in the Supreme Court that have uh, set to define what the Second Amendment, uh, the original intent of the Second Amendment, and what it guarantees. So in this segment, I'm going to kind of go off script a little bit. I, I know this this uh, the show. I've always tried to make it very uh, structured and more educational. But I think in order to have this segment work, I need to be talking more off the cuff because, uh, as I said in the first segment, uh, my experience with firearms is extensive. I have been a hunter my entire life. I grew up with firearms. I sell firearms uh, as my job. I have been around guns my entire life. Uh, I do not consider myself a gun nut. I am pro gun control to an extent. Um, I have, and I feel like I'm very equipped to do what I'm about to do. So I'm going to address 
both sides of this debate. I'm going to tell you where you're wrong and where I think you're wrong anyway. Feel free to disagree. Uh, but uh, so I just I'm going to delve right into that because we're getting kind of late in the episode. So uh, I'm going to start with the gun nuts. Um, and the first thing is stop with the tyrannical government argument. It's old and it's tired. The asymmetry in arms that exists between the the army, the standing army, the federal government wanted to come and take your your liberties, and they would they have the arms and the munitions and the, the capability to do it instantly. Uh, us as individuals being able to to throw together some loosely formed militia, uh, Red Dawn style, to go overthrow a, a tyrannical government that is that is a pipe dream. That's not going to that can that won't happen. It just it it, it can't the. And the fact that you think that it could is, and you're, you're making, I, I constantly hear this argument is that, well, the Nazis took the guns, the Stalin and the Soviets took the guns and they fell into tyranny. But you have to look at the, the government, the, the government, the political structures of both the Weimar Republic in the 1930s prior to Nazi Germany and then Tsarist Russia. Um, one, the Weimar Republic was a was Germany's first real attempt at a Republican dem democratic style government. Uh, they were coming out of a monarchy uh, prior after World War One, and didn't have the 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 long-standing democratic norms and institutions that we in the United States have that most of Western democ most of Western democracies have now. Uh, so. And then also Tsarist Russia uh, prior to this, the, this, the Soviet uh, revolution. Uh, the Soviet takeover of the, the of, of Russia, Tsarist Russia was uh, was a monarchy. It was a it was a, an absolute monarchistic regime, and so there wasn't established democratic norms of individual freedoms to begin with. Whereas now you see most Western democracies have a lot of gun control. I mean, England, France, uh, most of West Australia, most of most of the Western world has a far tighter gun control legislation and you wouldn't say that there's creeping authoritarianism in those countries there just there just isn't personal freedoms are not limited because the citizens don't have because citizens don't have the arms to fight against a government that in a battle they would lose anyway um so that's my first real like kind of uh kind of pointing at the gun nuts and saying and drop that i mean you have you have legitimate arguments saying that is my individual right to protect my home from from threats against my person and my property from other individuals but to try to make this argument about fighting against this tyrannical government it's interesting to me because the one of the the, the biggest uh, ideas behind the founders inputting the second amendment into the con into the bill of rights was because of the fear of a standing army and then, but yet we don't look at that the standing army as a threat we look at politicians as a threat uh now and well that's how they look at it and i don't know i just find that i just find that whole argument one historically inaccurate but just also kind of just wrong uh also uh firearm registration that's the biggest thing everything uh everything is any type of firearm legislation that's put out there is a path to registration and registration is a path to confiscation once they know what you have they can take them that is one of the arguments i that argument is is constantly repeated and repeated and repeated at gun counters across the United States. I hear it all the time. And, and that's just, that's just not, I just don't, 
the slippery slope argument is such a lazy argument because you can make literally make a slippery slope about anything. And yes, there are certain times and there are certain things that have become slippery slopes. But in terms of firearm registration leading to confiscation, I want to dismiss that because there isn't any pre well, we'll get to this in a second. Up until 2016, there wasn't any precedent for confiscation, even the 1934 Gun Control Act. FDR did not look to take fully automatic and short barrel rifles out of fully automatic and short barrel rifles out of the citizens' hands. He looked to tax them and try to get them on circulation. The 1968 Gun Control Act did not ban, did not confiscate. Then uh, the assault weapons ban in 1994 did not confiscate. There is no precedent for confiscation at the Fed, uh, of property, of firearms, until 2016, when President, then President Trump used the ATF to confiscate, to basically ban, outright ban the use of bump stocks, which is a tool that is placed, it's a stock, it's, it's a stock option you can put on a semi-automatic rifle, generally like an AR-15, that uses the force of the recoil to make the gun fully automatic. And it basically uh, skirts the, NR, the NFA laws. And essentially what he did was, instead of doing what President Biden is trying to do with pistol braces, which basically make a pistol into a short-barreled rifle, making those things an NFA item, which would need to be registered and uh, taxed, Trump just outright banned them and even got pushback from his then attorney general, Jeff Sessions, saying, I cannot do this. This has to be an act of Congress. Um, and then later President Trump used uh, his acting attorney general to push through this ban. So if anything, your own guy was the, is the, is, it was the precedent center of confiscation, which even, but Biden thankfully did not, did not pursue that, did not keep that precedent going. And actually with pistol braces, which is essentially really kind of the same class of thing as the bump stocks, then didn't continue that precedent and kind of ended it. So thankfully, anything, Biden uh, has done more to protect your long-term gun rights than, uh, than Trump has. So those are kind of the things that I wanted to point out about uh, gun nuts. And, that, and also one last thing, stop with semantics. If you're talking to somebody and they don't know the difference between an AK-47 and an AR-15, that doesn't mean that they're dumb or their point's invalid. That just means that they don't know the difference. Um, but that gets to my point about gun counter, gun guns being a cult, gun ownership being a culture and is developed in the culture. One of the biggest things about uh, the definite, like being able to see culture is the existence of semantic domains within the language used. You can see this at coffee, like coffee shops all over the place, right? If you walk into Starbucks and you order a large, you're looked at like as an idiot, right? Because the, the term is, is a grande or venti, whatever it is. So this very much, there's very much a culturalistic aspect to guns. And a lot of it has to do because there's, there is an ethos to one self-reliance. There's pull you up by your bootstraps, kind of, I'm going to look out for myself. And the best way to do that is by having a gun. There really is like the, the frontier myth really lives deep into the ethos of gun owners in the United States. So when you're talking about banning or threatening their, their ability to own stuff, you're really kind of in a way attacking their culture and any culture is going to push back against that. So we have to, when you're talking to, to people, this is starting to get into what I, the, the gun control proponents, uh, is that you is that you need to understand that there a lot of people see these things as essential to their way of life they see guns as essential to their way of life so when you're not when you're talking about 
banning guns or using really, really hyperbole, hyperbole, hyperbolic language, you really are alienating that. It becomes a non-starter. And, and we really do because we all have a vested interest in keeping our children safe, our schools safe, so our children can go to school, our, our public areas safe, so we don't have to worry about getting shot by some crazy. And it, it just we have to we have to come to the table. And right now, both sides are not wanting to come to the table because they all have these non-starters. We've all dug our trenches in. So a few of the things that I wanted to go after the gun control nuts for is know your definitions. Because there is a semantic domain there, um, and you start talking about assault rifle, assault rifle is not really a term. It's starting to be, it prop pops up in a few state uh, uh, state legislation pieces, like the I-1639 has, has defined what an assault rifle is. It's anything that's a semi-automatic rifle uh, that shoots a solid projectile. And that's such a, that's a very, very broad definition. And I think that um, when those pieces of legislation are crafted, they really alienate people because what they're trying to target is the AR-15 or the AK-47. And AR-15 does not mean assault rifle. AR means armalite rifle. It's the, the name of the, the company that designed the, designed the gun. So uh, just know your definitions. And when you're crafting this, when, when legislation is being crafted, I, I try to consult people who actually own these firearms or know about these firearms because when I-1639 got passed, there is a lot of recreational guns that really, if you were to look at it, you wouldn't think, well, the conceptualization of how assault rifle is seen in media in both movies and, and video games, and then also how it's portrayed through the news, is that you wouldn't think a recreational semi-automatic 22 that most kids use to train on would be a, an assault rifle, but that's how it's classed. And now purchasing that kind of gun has to people who are purchasing that kind of gun have to go through the exact same processes if they were buying an AR-15. So it's those kind of things that the lack of knowledge and lack of definitions, and then how, and then that ends up in policy, and that really starts to alienate gun owners. You can't ban everything because of some something that somebody might do to an extent. To an extent, right? Is you know, there obviously are there there is room for con, for gun control and what we call common sense gun legislation. But we have to know our definitions, and these things are important when we're talking about them and, and uh, just saying, well, guns need to be banned or all these, and not knowing the differences between firearms and what is semi-automatic, what is fully automatic, and what kind of gun legislation is already on the books to try to, uh, to curb these certain things. Not knowing that stuff, it, and you're talking about banning, somebody's, banning somebody from using something, and you don't really know the definitions yourself. It's it's an it it doesn't create for a very it doesn't create for a constructive conversation. Um, actually, listen to people who, and it, this gets me into my kind of another point is actually listen to people who use firearms for recreation, hunters and target shooters and competition shooters and and you know get to know them and what they value and what they see because we're all Americans. Just because you don't value something doesn't mean that somebody else doesn't value it. If you don't see hunting as you see hunting as an archaic form of recreation, I mean, there's a lot of people who don't see it that way. Um, but, you know, gun ownership is essential to a lot of people's ways of life, especially people in rural communities. Um, and when you are taught, when people are talking about banning of certain firearms um, without real due process and, and having having a, a conversation about it really alienates those populations and it just drives further wedges. So there's a lot that we can do. It's like for real, for me, it's like 
gun owners, if you want a seat at the table, you can't have a zero sum, a zero, you can't view gun control as a zero sum game. Not everything is a slippery slope to recreation that then leads to confiscation. Stop that. You gotta have, if you want, a, if you want a, a seat at the table, put yourself there and compromise. And the same thing goes with gun control advocates is that if you want, if you want gun control, if you want gun control and you want it to get passed, start learning your definitions and start crafting actual legislation that is meaningful because there's a lot of wasted stuff that gets put into bills like I-1639. Um, and a lot of it has to do with just not knowing the firearms themselves. So that's my that's my rant. Uh, thank you for listening to that. Um, going forward, uh, I just think one of my one of my biggest things is that it, we just need to talk to each other. I guess we all have a vested interest in making sure that these guns aren't ending up in the hands of people who will who would commit crimes with them. And we and how how would that plays out? We all need to have a seat at that table. Um, I, I listen. I try to listen to as much as I can from both sides of this debate. I hear a lot of I hear a lot of crazy people um, at the gun counter, and and, and and a lot of it is just spawned out of ignorance. Really read up on the Gun Control Act of 1968, the Gun Control Act of 1934, the Brady Bill. What do and, and then the Supreme Court decisions. What do they? What do they? What does what does our past say about our future? Um, and that really is what we all try to do with learning history. So with that, I hope that you learned something today. Anyway, uh, so I think next month we'll tackle something a little bit more more in line with what the show is. But I think with uh, with that, I think we're going to end the episode. But uh, thank you guys all for listening. This has been To the Republic. I am Jake. See you guys next month. KXRW would like to thank our friends at Ferrars Bistro for their ongoing support of community radio. Ferrars Bistro has a family-friendly vibe and comfort food with a flair. Ferrars Bistro has attracted both Vancouver locals and out-of-towners since their doors first opened in 2007. Dine-in, take-out, or delivery is offered. More information available at ferrarsbistro.com. That's F-A-R-R-A-R-S bistro.com. Many thanks to our sponsor and friends at Say Chow Columbia River Tap Room and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 27 years in the Vancouver area. Say Chow Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way in Vancouver. Dine in or take out for lunch Monday through Friday, 11 to 2 p.m. Hours will change and live local music will return once again as COVID phases allow. More information available at say-chow.com, that's S-A-Y-C-I-A-O.com or directly at 360-210-5522.